chapter 3 of 2 Thessalonians in the context of sin and judgment. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may spread rapidly and be glorified, just as it did also with you, and that we may be delivered from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. And may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep aloof from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we might not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you, that you might follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone will not work, neither let him eat. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now, such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. And if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that man and do not associate with him so that he may be put to shame. And yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. May the Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. The apostle in this chapter, verses 1 to 5, he has a reminder that we ought to be praying for one another and praying that the word of the Lord might spread in the face of opposition. That's in verses 1 to 5. In verses 6 to 15, he addresses a problem in the Thessalonian church, which is actually a common problem, we'll see elsewhere, and that is, there are those who claim the faith, but they don't live according to the faith. In this case, specifically, it is uh, a man who is being a sluggard, or a man who's being lazy, a man who's being a bum, he's mooching off of other people, not contributing and not participating in generosity for the church, for the local church. He's in the church for his own belly. He's in the church so that he can feed himself and benefit from it, but not help anybody else. This is also a common sin. That's what he addresses in verses 6 to 15. In the second part, It may be because there were those 
who were wrongly anticipating the return of Christ at any moment or at any time. And it may be connected to that. That is, well, since Christ is going to return, why do I have to work? Why do I have to do anything? Over the years, there have been people and cults, fanatics, who believe that way so that they quit working, they quit providing, they quit doing everything that is necessary for daily living because they are waiting, anticipating, any second now, any minute now, Christ could return, so there's no need to do any of this work. As a pretext, as a pretense for their own sin and laziness, they say, well, Jesus is going to return soon, at any moment. By the way, nowhere does the Bible say Jesus will return at any second, any minute, or any moment. Nowhere does it say anything like that. It's not as though we need to be biting our nails, waiting for the next minute for Jesus to return. That's not the way the Bible portrays it. In fact, it tells us that there are signs, like it told us in chapter 2. The apostasy has to happen first. The man of lawlessness has to be revealed first. Those things have yet to occur. But there are signs, according to Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21, signs of the times so that we can anticipate when it may, may actually occur. But it won't be the next minute or the next second. That's impossible. And even over the years, not only have fanatics done that, but liberal fanatics, they teach that that is the theology that Jesus preached, that he was going to return at any minute, at, at any moment, and because he didn't, the apostles had to come up with another doctrine, a doctrine of delay, and explain and rationalize why Jesus didn't return within the next year or whatever they say. But that's not true either. Jesus made it clear in those chapters already mentioned in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that that was not going to be the case. And even in the case of Simon Peter in John 21, Simon Peter had to be crucified. That had to happen before the return of Christ. And as time went on, eventually he was crucified, but he could not, Christ could not have returned before that. So, excuse-making within the Christian church to disobey the commandments of God. But now first, verses 1 to 5. His final exhortation includes a request for prayer. Finally, brethren, pray for us. Praying for one another. This is intercessory prayer. We intercede on one another's behalf. And this is one living saint for another living saint. It is not a, a living saint for a dead saint. And it's not a, expecting a dead saint to pray for a living saint. That's not the way it works. In Catholicism and other forms and other denominations like that, they do think that and they do pray like that. Cults think that way and pray that way. But the biblical picture of prayer excludes praying for the dead or expecting the dead to pray for you or to do something for you. Ancestor worship is praying to the dead and expecting the dead to do something for you. Some people think our relatives are looking down from heaven and seeing everything we do. And so we better 
watch our behavior. That's not the case. There's no kind of that inter- intimate interaction between the living and the dead in this way. But those who are alive can and ought to pray for each other. Pray for us. Remember, he had also mentioned this in the book of Ephesians. Galatians and then in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6, Ephesians six eighteen to 20. Ephesians 6, 18. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Praying for one another, to what end? He said in 2 Thessalonians 3.1 that the word of the Lord may spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you. That's the same in Ephesians 6. He wants boldness for him, for the apostle and for the saints to be able to courageously preach the gospel. It's interesting, is it not? Though we need intercessory prayers for other needs. At the end of Ephesians 6, at the end of 2 Thessalonians, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, even at the end of 1 Thessalonians, he says this in verse 25, 5.25 of 1 Thessalonians. Brethren, pray for us. But what is the main concern for prayer for one another? That we might have boldness For the word of the Lord to spread through our preaching, it may spread rapidly and be glorified. We want the gospel to spread. So when we are asking one another for prayer requests, we should also be asking in reference to people who need to hear the gospel, people to whom we are preaching. We have to keep those people in mind as we pray for one another, because often we are fearful, often we are shy, often we are timid, and we don't want to open our mouth to tell our neighbor, to tell our relative, to tell our friend, our co-worker. We don't want to say anything, but this is what we are supposed to overcome. It's a sin not to preach the word and to keep quiet when we should be bold and courageous. It was spread among the Thessalonians. Why should they keep it to themselves? And not only is it that the word should spread, but we should be protected from perverse and evil men. It's necessary to be protected from perverse and evil men. Who are these perverse and evil men? What would they do? They would put a halt to it. They would say, no, don't preach like that. Don't say that. That's not true. That's what you believe. That's not what we believe. So on. And then they would seek to harm you, seek to kill you, seek to be violent against it. 
the Apostle Paul had to deal with perverse and evil men right after his conversion. Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 9, verse 22. But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. He was confounding them and proving that Jesus of Nazareth was and is the Christ. And they couldn't refute him. So what did they do because they couldn't refute him? This is an example of perverse and evil men. Verse 23. And when many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. And their plot became known to Saul. And they were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. He had to escape from perverse and evil men. Look also at verse 28, 28 to 30, verses 28 to 30. And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. That's the kind of boldness we need. Has anyone ever threatened us in this way? No. Perhaps not even with physical violence. No one has ever threatened us like this. So that must raise the question, how boldly, how courageously are we telling people the truth? Because it should arouse in them ire against us, their ire, their fire against us to do away with us, to not be around us. So let's be bold. Also recognize in verse 2, 2 Thessalonians 3, 2, not all have faith. When he says not all have faith, he means not all have true faith by grace through faith in Christ to believe that Jesus died and rose again for them. Not all have that true faith. This verse is not endorsing, it's not teaching the doctrine of prevenient grace. The doctrine of prevenient grace teaches that because Jesus died for every human being, they say, therefore, because he died, every human being has a part of the grace of God, and that grace grants them the ability to believe it is within them, it's implicit in them, they just need to act on it, and if they act on it, then they have salvation. So it's up to them, and they take verses out of context to teach that doctrine called prevenient grace. The Bible does not teach prevenient grace, that so-called Jesus died for everybody, and because he died for everybody, everybody has a little bit of faith, a little bit of grace, to exercise if they so choose according to their free will and then they'll be saved. 
And if they won't, that's okay. God won't force anybody. God doesn't force anybody to do anything according to their theology. Yet that's not what the verse is teaching. Not all have faith means not all have true faith to believe that Jesus died and rose again on their behalf. However, since we do have to face perverse and evil men, we do have in verses 3 to 5 some encouragement. We will overcome. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. 1 John 5, 4. And here too, verse 3. But the Lord is faithful. Even though we may not have as strong a faith as we should, the Lord is faithful. 2 Timothy 2.13 If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. The Lord is faithful and will ensure that we persevere. Because he says he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. He will strengthen and protect us from Satan, the evil one. He will do so. Philippians 1.6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. It will happen. We will be strengthened and protected because of God's work in us. 2 Timothy 4.18 2 Timothy 4.18 The Lord will deliver me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to His heavenly kingdom. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 9. On being strengthened and protected by God. 1 Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. So we are protected from the evil one. Satan will not be victorious. Remember, Jesus said, no one shall snatch them out of my hand. And the Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one shall snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father, we are one. John 10, 28 to 30. Because they have demonstrated good fruit, because of 
faith in the gospel and because of trust in the power of God to fulfill his word, he says this, verse 4, And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. They have been following his commands. His commands, when he says what we command, he's talking about the apostolic commandments from the Lord Jesus to the apostles. So it's the doctrine of the apostles which came from Christ. They have been practicing, and he has confidence that they will continue to practice what they were told. It is both currently necessary, and also it's necessary to continue to do so. Hebrews chapter 6, Hebrews 6, verse 9. Hebrews 6, 9 to 12. But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises." Another element of the prayer, remember he is praying in verses 1 and 2. Another element of this prayer is in verse 5. And may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. It is the Lord who directs the heart to love God. The Lord directs the heart to love God. 1 John 4:19 We love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. So we have to depend on his love in us for us to do that which is pleasing to him, to love him in return. Deuteronomy 30 verse 6. 30 verse 6. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul in order that you may live. The one who initially directed is the one who continually directs. And that's why we pray for one another's hearts to be directed, to be guided, to be led into loving God more. It's also for the steadfastness of Christ. That's an interesting phrase. The steadfastness of Christ. Why would he call it that? Just as Christ was steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, and he kept the future in mind, he kept the promise in mind, he kept the inheritance in mind, so should we. Hebrews 12, 1-3. Christ was steadfast 
And the prayer is for us to be the same. Hebrews 12, 1-3 Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. He endured such hostility. Why, why should we be so easily disheartened? He did so on our behalf. Are we not to follow in his footsteps, as it says in 1 Peter 2, 22? He suffered on our behalf that we might follow in his steps. It also says in Hebrews 12, 12 and 13, Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. This is the kind of strength and steadfastness we need, the kind that anticipates the life to come as Christ did. What Christ accomplished, we also must accomplish. Remember, if any man wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Luke 9.23 We need more love and we need more steadfastness and God will grant it to us. Verse 6 Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep aloof from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. He says it again, we command you. He said it in verse 4, to do what we command. Verse 6, now we command you. For those who say there are only two commandments and nothing else is specified, there are no other particulars in the Bible, in the New Testament, the only two commandments we ought to know, love God and love our neighbor. Without any more details, any more examples, no specificity, we don't need to know anything more. So whatever in our own estimation it is to love God and love our neighbor, have had it. That's what we should do. That's the attitude, and sometimes in words, that's what people teach. Yet right here we have a commandment. It's a commandment. And it does not say explicitly, love God, love your neighbor. It's talking about something else. This is going to be an example of loving God by tough loving our neighbor. Loving our neighbor with tough love. That's a phrase that was popular a couple of decades ago. We need to revive it. Tough love. If you really love somebody, you need to tell him the tough truth, the hard truth, and expect him to live according to what you told him. Here we have it. And also, 
He calls upon the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not human authority. It's the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ because he's commanding in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That means that the apostle has put himself in jeopardy. He's taking a risk. Of course, he knows that he is inspired and he knows Christ appeared to him in Acts chapter 9. He does have the authority of Christ and he was taught by Christ, but it also it puts us at a crossroads. We need to figure out. The Apostle Paul said he's teaching this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if we deviate from this practice, it's not just deviating from a man, Paul, who lived 2,000 years ago. We are deviating from an apostle and an apostle of Christ who announces these truths in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's serious. So we cannot take this matter lightly and make excuses for the sins of people who behave like this. There cannot be any rationalization, excuse-making for them. What does he tell us to do? Here's the hard part. That you keep aloof from every brother who leads an unruly life. We're supposed to keep aloof, disassociate. He actually said this in verse 6, to keep aloof. But then he also says as well that in verse 14, he says, And if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that man and do not associate with him. Do not associate with him. That's what it means to keep aloof. This has to do with one who calls himself a brother. We're not talking about believer with unbeliever. We're talking about two men, two individuals, or even two women, or a man and a woman, any combination. Both of them claim to be believers in Christ. When they both claim to be believers, then this is the action that must be taken with the unrepentant brother who is leading an unruly life. What does unruliness mean in this context? He calls it in verse 7, undisciplined life. And then specifies that this is a man who is not working for his own food. He is... A leech, a mooch, he is a freeloader on, from other people's table, other people's labor, other people's income. That's the context, at least here, of what it means to be unruly and undisciplined. Verse 6 continues, And not according to the tradition which you received from us. The tradition which you receive from us. This is an apostolic tradition which is also a Christological tradition. This is not a human tradition. It's not the traditions of men and it's not the traditions of the elders. The word tradition 
in reference to a custom instruction plus the actual practice of the instruction. In that sense, it could be from a false religion, it could be from a cult, it could be from the Jewish false teachers, the traditions of the elders, it could be from different sources. But here, in this context, the tradition is not anything like that. It's a tradition that's coming from God himself. He said in 2.15, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter, from us. Elsewhere, we find in 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 1 and 2. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. The traditions that Paul taught the Corinthians, that he taught the Thessalonians, were traditions that he learned from Christ. And he says, I taught you them to practice them, just like I was practicing them, and just like Christ taught me to teach you. Imitate me, just as I also imitate Christ. Christ taught Paul, Paul taught the Corinthians, and he taught the Thessalonians, and he taught everywhere, as he is fond of saying in 1 Corinthians, just as I teach everywhere in every church. He uses an expression like that several times, either like that or similar to that in 1 Corinthians, showing the universal nature of what he's teaching. It's not cultural. It's not because this man has a legitimate reason. It's nothing like that. It's a universal commandment, tradition, to be practiced. So, the tradition which you receive from us, it was not only spoken or taught, it was also lived. Verse 7, For you yourselves, 2 Thessalonians 3.7, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, They weren't behaving that way. Verse 8, Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. We were not going from house to house and place to place expecting others to pay for our meals. We weren't doing that. He says in 8, But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we might not be a burden to any one of you. They kept working. Verse 9, not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you that you might follow our example. Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. This same practice, he taught the Ephesians to do the same. Acts chapter 20. 20, verses 33 to 35. 20, verse 33. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. 
You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything, I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Acts chapter 18. Acts 18. We do have the apostle making something with his own hands. Like he said, labor with your own hands. Acts chapter 18. 18, 1 to 4. Acts 18, 1. After these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a certain Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working. For by trade, they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4. What is this unruly man doing? He's actually a thief. He's actually a thief because... He's not compensating for the food he's eating, so he is a thief. Ephesians 4.28 tells us, Let him who steals steal no longer, but rather let him labor, performing with his own hands what is good, in order that he may have something to share with him who has need. The thief should stop being a thief, labor, and not only provide for himself in good labor, but also help those with a real need. The man doesn't have a real need, but he should earn more than he needs so that he can help somebody with a real need. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verses 9 to 12. Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more, and make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you may behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. It's a part of the gospel according to verses 9 and 10 being taught by God to love one another. Loving one another is not to remain stagnant. We're supposed to excel still more make it our ambition to lead a quiet life, attend to our own business, work with our hands, just as we commanded you, so that you may behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. We cannot have unbelievers say, you're a Christian, so why are you so lazy? 
you're, you're a Christian, then why are you always begging me for something? That shouldn't happen. And we shouldn't be in any need. That's the example he set, and that's what he consistently taught everywhere he went. So then, now 2 Thessalonians 3.10. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone will not work, neither let him eat. This is an order, a command, a, a charge. It's not, not to be taken lightly, correct? He was saying it when he was there. He's heard now, because he says in verse 11, for we hear some news has spread to the apostle, which is not gossip and slander, it's the truth. And now he's acting and writing on the truth to correct the sin in the church. He's telling them this, if anyone will not work, neither let him eat. That's a tough statement. That's tough love. If they won't work, then they shouldn't eat. Don't let them eat. We have to tell them and then refuse them to eat. You better go work. Go work, find some works, any kind of work, whatever work you need to have. Earn some money, earn a living, support yourself. If you're married, support your wife. If you have children, support your children. That kind of thing needs to happen. So one cannot be a lazy Christian, a sluggard Christian. Those two do not go together. Just like other sins don't go together with Christian. Laziness and Christianity do not go together. Verse 11 For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. What's this? No work at all, acting like busybodies. This is a curious noun here, busybody. A busybody is a body, a person, who pretends to be busy going here and there, but he's only pretending. He's not really busy. He's not really a busy body doing good, profitable, beneficial work, but he's giving the appearance of that, but he's busy in gossip, busy in slander, busy in eating other people's food. He's busy doing sinful things, not godly things. That's a busybody. It shouldn't be that way. Verse 12, Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. He says command again. He says exhort. To exhort, what does it mean to exhort? To exhort includes both encouragement to do what's right and a warning to avoid what is wrong. A warning on what is wrong. It says in Titus 1.9, Titus 1.9, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching that he may be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those 
who contradict. Another place is Hebrews 13, 22. Hebrews 13, 22. But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. He calls his letter a word of exhortation. Well, what is contained in the book of Hebrews? We have sound theology on the person and work of Christ. We have an explanation of our inheritance to come. We have many examples, like chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews, on those who have been faithful, steadfast in the faith until the very end. But also the book of Hebrews is well known for its famous warning passages. The warning passages, chapters 2, 3, 4, 6, 10, and 12, are full of warnings. As well, a little here, a little there, elsewhere. But those chapters in particular are full of warnings. We better believe what we're, uh, what, uh, you better believe what I'm writing to you. It's your only hope. And if you don't, like he says in chapter 10, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. That's the warning part, which is also what he's telling here. So what will happen? We'll, we'll see in verse, verses 14 and 15, the warning part of it. Verse 13, But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. That means that doing good is to command and exhort the wayward brother to work in quiet fashion and eat his own bread. That's his way of saying, do not grow weary of doing good. Confronting him is not doing evil. Confronting him is not unloving. Confronting him is not ungracious. Confronting him is not judgmentalism. Confronting him is doing good. Do not grow weary of doing good. 14. And if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter... Take special note of that man and do not associate with him so that he may be put to shame. This one practice, failing to provide for himself and for his loved ones, he's saying here, if there is a man who is this way, he says, take special note of that man and do not associate with him. One sin, one unrepentant sin, disassociation. In this case, we're talking about laziness. How often does this actually happen? That men are confronted, and if they won't repent, then they are told to leave the church, or the church is told to disassociate, stay aloof, remain aloof from that wayward brother, the unruly, undisciplined, lazy brother, so-called brother. Doesn't happen. It hardly does happen. But we're told to disassociate. This is like 1 Corinthians 5, the whole chapter, but in verse 13, the unrepentant 
sexually immoral man, he says, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Remove him. He shouldn't be in your assembly. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? This also, this leaven of laziness might spread in the church of the Thessalonians, and that's not going to be good for anybody. It's going to uh, bring contention in marriages, um, discontent among the children and the family, among the relatives, parents, children, everyone. There's going to be strife if their needs are not provided. That's why it's serious. Look at this last clause in verse 14. So that he may be put to shame. So that he may be put to shame. Think about that. When was the last time we thought that we as Christians are supposed to be putting others to shame? Are we Christians supposed to be putting others to shame? Yes or no? Right here, it says so, so that he may be put to shame. In today's theology, everything is the opposite. We're never supposed to shame anybody. We're never supposed to humiliate anybody. Nothing like that should happen. But not so here. In Luke 13, Luke 13, Jesus, he shamed his opponents. Luke 13, 10 to 17, it's the Sabbath day, and Jesus heals a woman who had been ill or in her sickness for 18 years. He healed the woman on the Sabbath day. His opponents despised him. They objected. We pick it up. at The people like it. The woman, of course, liked it. Jesus did it. So God liked it. Now pick it up, we pick it up at 14, 14 to 17. And the synagogue official, Luke 13, 14, the synagogue official, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the multitude in response, there are six days in which work should be done. Therefore, come during them and get healed and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? And this woman, a daughter of Abraham as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? And as he said this, all his opponents were being humiliated. And the entire multitude was rejoicing over all the glorious things being done by him. Jesus was an expert, the most skilled of all, in humiliating and shaming his enemies, those who would not repent of sin. He was an expert at it. Contrary to the loving Jesus portrayed these days. Very contrary to that. There are plenty of examples of Jesus doing so, and even if we're not explicitly told the enemies were shamed, the enemies were humiliated, they certainly were, like in this case where it says it explicitly. 
the book of Acts. The book of Acts, chapter 6, verses 8 to 15. The book of Acts, chapter 6, verses 8 to 15. Stephen, he is preaching and he is refuting his enemies. And notice what happens. It says in 6.10, Acts 6.10, And yet they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. They were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And because they couldn't refute him, they were publicly being shamed, what do they end up doing? They couldn't verbally refute him. They accuse him falsely with false witnesses, then bring him before the authorities. They let him speak. That's Acts chapter 7. But Stephen, at the end of his speech, he confronts them for their unrepentant sins, and then they put him to death by stoning. Because they couldn't refute him. They were humiliated, so in their retaliation, they put him to death. 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. A few examples explicitly of the Apostle Paul asserting that he is intentionally, deliberately, without sin, shaming the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 6, 5. When they go to court against each other, 1 Corinthians 6, 5. I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren, but brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers? 1 Corinthians 6, 5 and 6. I say this to your shame. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15, 34. 15, 34. Become sober-minded as you ought, and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. I speak this to your shame. Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, verses 6 to 8. Titus 2, 6. Likewise urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, in order that the opponent may be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. This has now spread. It's not just Jesus or the apostle shaming others. Stephen shamed his opponents. We might also see Apollos in the book of Acts, Acts 18, 24-28. He shamed his opponents by refuting them publicly. And now right here, the young men, Titus the pastor, not an apostle, Titus the pastor, a young pastor, is supposed to teach the young men in the churches to live this way so that Titus, a young man, and all the other young men might do what? In order that the opponent may be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Shaming our enemies by the way we live. 
verse now back to Second Thessalonians three fifteen. Second Thessalonians three fifteen. And yet, do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Don't regard him as an enemy in that you're not seeking to disassociate or approach the confrontation in a way that you're done and that's it, but your attitude in approaching him should be one of seeking for him to repent, seeking for him to understand, not just shaking the dust off your feet without actually instructing him, appealing to him, admonishing him. He should be admonished. So that's the way we treat a brother. We seek to appeal. We seek to plead. We seek to explain. We seek to be devoted in a loving way to do whatever it takes to help him overcome his sin. That's what he means by don't regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. 16. Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. May the Lord be with you all. Another prayer at the end of the letter for peace. Peace in conflict. Peace when there is disarray. And this peace comes from the Lord of peace, who is able to give us peace in every circumstance. Peace in every circumstance so that there's no anxiety. Peace supplants anxiety. Philippians 4, Philippians 4, 4 to 9. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace shall be with you. God grants peace. He grants peace by our prayers, by our prayers of thanksgiving, inclusive of thanksgiving, but also by our minds meditating upon what's true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, good repute, excellence, worthy of praise. We must do that too. That's how God instills or builds up the peace within us. Verse 16, may the Lord be with you all. The Lord said, and lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age, Matthew 28, 20. This, it, this prayer is a, a prayer that is in accordance with the will of God. He's praying in accordance with the will of God, which will be fulfilled. The Lord will be with his people. 317. 
I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. It was necessary because there were there were imposters writing in the name of the Apostle Paul. There were imposters who wanted to subvert the true gospel. That's why Paul wrote like this, his own greeting. Because there were times when the Apostle Paul used a scribe, also in commentaries called an amanuensis. An amanuensis or a scribe to write his letters. He would dictate it, he would review it, he would endorse it, but a scribe, an amanuensis, would write it and send it off. But since it was written in someone else's handwriting, it was necessary for the recipients to know that this letter is actually coming from the Apostle Paul, not from some other man of lesser authority or of no authority. It's coming from Paul. That's why he's saying, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. He says the same in 1 Corinthians 16, 21. The greeting is in my own hand. Paul. Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 11. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It's likely that he wrote Galatians all by himself without the help of a scribe. Just a quick note in Romans 16, Romans 16, 22. Romans 16.22, it says, I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. Who was the, na- who was the scribe who's named there? Tertius. The book of Romans, everyone acknowledges, came from Paul. But who actually put the pen to the page? It was Tertius who did it. And Paul <coughs> endorsed it. Here's another one. 1 Peter 5.12, 1 Peter 5.12. Peter says, Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. He says, through Silvanus. Silvanus is the long form of the name in the book of Acts, Silas. So Peter used Silvanus to write 1 Peter. But these, but, but the, the reason why all of this is necessary to explain has to do with frauds, counterfeits, imposters who would seek to undermine the true faith and the true gospel. So the apostle says he writes this greeting with his own hand. May God's grace also be with us. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.